We return this morning to John chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. As you're turning there, thank you for your prayers for me during my time away with an annual pastor's retreat, some guys I've met with for about 20 years to uh, worship and pray together and sharpen each other. And thank you for prayers as we said goodbye to our beloved Amy. You dog lovers understand. Thank you for your prayers. We really felt them. John 4. 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that would be high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This text can be a little difficult to understand for us Westerners. Why? Think about some simple activities you've already done today. You got up this morning, went to the faucet in the kitchen, got some water to drink, or got some fresh water to make coffee. Maybe a little bit later, later you washed the breakfast dishes with clean water in the sink. Went to the bathroom, washed your hands, maybe took a shower, got clean using fresh water. Perhaps you had time to throw some dirty clothes in a washing machine to be washed with clean water. And maybe on your way to church, you grabbed a bottle of fresh Arcadia spring water. Chances are good you never gave thought to the availability, availability or the cleanliness of your water. It is, in our culture, abundant and relatively cheap. Plus, none of us really get thirsty except by choice, that was a hard workout, give me the water bottle, or accident, oh, I forgot to stay hydrated. So it's likely in your mind you never made the connection between fresh water 
and your salvation. How many of you got fresh water this morning or drank from your water bottle and began to jump with joy thanking Jesus Christ for his salvation, for the gift of the Spirit, and for the promise of eternal life? How many of you did that? See, I was right. (laughs) Isn't it ironic that something we use every day and water is critical to our survival And it pictures the gift of eternal life. Isn't it ironic that we hardly give it a moment's thought? So let's use irony as the template over which we lay this text. And we'll look at three things the text helps you understand. The source of living water, the nature of living water, and then thirdly, the giver of living water. We'll look a lot at irony because John in particular as a gospel writer loves irony. Number one, the source of living water. What is ironic? We saw a number of weeks ago that the woman came to the well alone, high noon. That's not when women gathered water in that culture. It was too hot. She came to avoid scorn and derision. She was an outcast. And ironically, she met a man who knew her best and did not reject her. She asks Jesus, how can you ask me, a Samaritan and a woman, for a drink? And ironically, because Jesus is God, he doesn't abide by those man-made prejudices. She apparently has had many lovers, none who loved her like Jesus. We can surmise the reason she's had five husbands is at some point, one one or two or three of those men discarded her because they found something undesirable in her. Jesus knows everything about her that's undesirable and will never discard her. Jesus needs a drink. He's weary, hot, and tired. But he's not there just for water. He's there to give her a well of everlasting life. We're told in the story that she came with her water jar and she left without it. She left her water jar and she went home with a well. Ironically, how does Jesus draw out her need for his grace with seemingly ambiguous terms? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is it's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she's processing everything in natural terms. And she hears living water. In her culture, that meant water bubbling from a spring or water going along nicely in a stream. That would be the most desirable kind of water for someone to drink. She's processing naturally. Hear her in verse 11. The woman said to her, Sir, I've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Ironically, he doesn't get it. He is it. She doesn't need a bucket. She needs faith. Again, she's processing literally. And she launches into a history lesson on the well for the benefit of the sovereign Lord of history. She says, I know this well is unbelievably good. It's been around since the time of Jacob, 1,700 years. So she asks, almost with an air of criticism, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. 
Ironically, Jesus gave Jacob the well. Jesus gave her the well. Jesus actually made Jacob. Jesus actually created the woman. Jesus actually shaped every piece of DNA in Jacob's body as well as hers. Jesus is the one that has given not only Jacob but her life and breath every moment of their lives, ironically. Let's look secondly at uh, some of the irony involved in the nature of living water. Jesus wants to move her thinking from natural terms to spiritual by drawing the obvious contrast between water and God. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She's processing merely on a natural plane, so she says, give me this water, then I won't be thirsty or I have to come back here again. She sees an easier life, no more drudgery carrying water pots, indoor plumbing, that's what she hears. And ironically, she misses the point. Yes, you need a good water supply in an arid climate, but water works at many levels symbolically. It stood for survival physically, refreshing, eternity, cleansing, and having our natural human thirsts satisfied. Water shows you what you live for, what satisfies you. So Jesus says, lady, the irony here is that water both represents the problem and the solution, ironically. Water represents a problem. As easily as your thirst for water is satisfied and quenched by having some water, so easily is your thirst for God satisfied with God's substitutes, ironically. Both water and counterfeit gods leave you perpetually thirsty. So ironically, water's the problem, but water is also the solution. The physical water that we enjoy is indeed a gift from God. Nobody makes water. We're dependent on God giving it to us. Salvation is a gift from God, from heaven. No one deserves it. And it's symbolized as water. We have a little spring in our neighborhood. And when Janice and I walk in the neighborhood in Forest, Virginia, we look down and we see, is the spring flowing or is it dried up? God is a spring of life that never dries up. Jesus is saying, I am here as the one who satisfies your need for God, for his presence, for his glory, for his life. And that means, beloved, everything you desire in your life for pleasure ultimately points you to the ultimate pleasure of living in the presence of God himself. And so what is ironic is that living water only comes through a dying Savior. We get life eternal through the death of Jesus on his cross. Jesus alone has the power to purify the polluted well of my heart and your heart by his life-giving blood on the cross. Glorious irony of grace. 
Third point, and obviously this is going to take the longest. The giver of living water. Jesus promises her an eternal spiritual thirst quenching. Why? Because when you look to Jesus, you look for no other possible salvation. So the phrase, you'll never thirst again, to the discerning reader can create some confusion. What Jesus means is that the water he gives pictures satisfaction with the provision of God's salvation in Jesus. So I read this and I go, the living water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And I say, I do thirst. I thirst spiritually. Do you crave more the presence of God? Do you crave to give him more praise? Do you crave to give to live a a greater life of gratitude? Do you crave a greater hatred of sin and a greater love of righteousness? Don't you thirst for these kinds of graces over and over and over again? I'm going to call them sanctification cravings. It's a big, fancy theological word that describes the process of God working in you to make you more like his son Jesus. And part of the process is your fighting urges in you to live for yourself and not for God. And the way we live for God is we crave the kinds of things God promises us. So are you thirsty in that sense? I am. I know you are. You long for more rich Christian fellowship. You long for the word of God. You long to be a more praying person. You see my point? We thirst as believers in Jesus, in a sanctification sense, what Jesus is saying is, in a salvation sense, you'll never thirst again. And I know that in my experience. I hope you do too. When God makes clear to you the promise of everlasting life in Jesus Christ, that he will remove all of your sin in his body on the cross, and he will impute to you, credit to you, clothe you, his perfect righteousness There's no inclination in my soul to look for anything else. I don't desire any more salvation that is in Jesus. Study the world religions. Do you find anything greater than the promise of grace and mercy and life and forgiveness and hope in Jesus? No, sir. That's what he means by you'll never thirst again. Can you relate to what I'm saying? How many of you have that? No more thirsting for the salvation God gives us in Jesus. Glory to God. Well, let's get, we got that one out of the way. You'll never thirst again. So let's, let's fast forward three chapters in John and pick up another allusion to thirsting in John 7. Uh, Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem, kind of fooled his brothers. His brothers say, you know, don't go up there, they're going to kill you. He goes on his own. It's the festival of booze in Jerusalem. And here's what we read in chapter, uh, chapter John, verse 7. Chapter John, chapter 7, 37 and 39. Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Once again, 
Jesus appeals to your sense of thirst. Why? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, because he's at the feast. Once a year in the autumn in Jerusalem, Jews celebrated the Feast of Booths. It was commemorating the time when they wandered in the wilderness and didn't have permanent places to lay their heads. On the last day of the feast, that's alluded to in verse 37, the great day, here's what would happen. The priests would fill water jars from the pool of Siloam and march them into the temple to the altar. When they got to the altar, as the high priest was pouring out that water on the altar, the people of God had sticks in their hands and were raising them in the air, shouting, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, and the temple choirs were singing. Quite a spectacle. This was to commemorate God's miraculous provision of water for Israel as they wandered in the wilderness recorded in Exodus 17. It also represented their prayer for rain for the harvest, Zechariah 14. And it symbolized their hope of messianic blessings promised by the prophets to be poured out in the last days, such as Isaiah 44. Many Jews believed that Messiah would actually appear at this festival. He did. This is the record of it. So the feast conveys the image of thirsting. And Jews understood this. It, they would sing like Psalm 114, verse 8, the God of Jacob turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of blessing. When Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, they made those connections. They're at the feast of thirsting, as it were. Secondly, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, because he's speaking the language of the people. Any Jew familiar with his or her own scriptures resonated immediately with the image of thirsting and God supplying water. I've put some of them in the Bible, Bible uh, in the outline for you. It's just a small sampling. I wish I had the time to comment on these. I don't. But just to give you a flavor for how, what a plethora of illusions there are in, in the Old Testament alone to, to water. And again, Jesus simply speaking in the language of the people Consider, for example, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your ring, wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Isaiah 12, 3, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 41, 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights, springs in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I'll do the impossible. I'll provide for my people where there's no human provision. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Sidebar, great reference for pouring as a mode of baptism, but I can't run down that bunny trail. 
Jamie designed the worship for us. Jamie's an Old Testament scholar. He understood all these things. That's why you have the scriptures in the bulletin is the way you do for your call to worship. Isaiah 55, oh, everyone who thirsts, come. It's, it's the universal call of God to the human spirit. We are thirsty people. Isaiah 58, 11, and the Lord will continually guide you, satisfy your desire on scorched places, give you strength to your bones. Now, in that climate, what do you need in scorched places and strength? You need water. And you will be like a watered garden and a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That is the ultimate desire of someone living in an arid climate, unceasing supply of water. It's who God is everlastingly to his people. And then Ezekiel 47, Jamie made the beautiful connection between that and Revelation 22 and the scripture that John read earlier. Third reason Jesus is speaking the language of thirst. He's speaking the language of the human heart. You were created to be filled with the life of God. The Spirit of God living in you, giving you true and everlasting satisfaction. So if the Spirit of God is in you, in a world without sin, would Adam and Eve be absolutely, totally, and perfectly satisfied? Yes. And not least because they lived in the presence of God without sin. That blessing was forfeited as a fall when Adam and Eve basically said, we can find satisfaction for our souls on our own terms, not yours, God, irrespective of the fact that you're the one that made us and made life and designed us to live in your presence. And so the entrance of sin into the world has left all of us empty, disjointed, and ever-thirsting. We are what you would call spiritual dipsomaniacs. A dipsomaniac is a person who's always thirsting. We are by nature, because we are no longer in Eden, in the presence of God, craving, thirsting. And here's the point. This is so critical to know that the Bible connects your physical need of water with your spiritual need of God. Can you see the little paradigm I have for you in the bulletin? Just as water is essential to physical life, so God is essential to spiritual life. Just as our need for water is driven by physical thirst, thank God there's a thing called thirst in us or we wouldn't get the water we need, so our need for God is driven by spiritual thirst. And without the life of God in you, you will thirst uh, perpetually. Now I want everyone to look at the bulletin because if I have anything important to say to you, it is right here. Look at the next thing in the bulletin. No one in God's presence thirsts. They're thoroughly satisfied because there's nothing more to desire. Ladies, read that out loud for me right now. Ladies, just read that out loud. No one... No one separated from God can be truly satisfied. They're, they always want more because by definition, there always is more, God himself. Men read that out loud. No one separated from God can be truly satisfied. They always want more because by definition, 
There always is more. God himself. Think on that. Meditate on that. Ponder that. Pound that into your heart. When Christ asks at the feast, is anyone thirsty? He is saying, you've got to come to grips with those two facts. Four. Why does Jesus talk the language of thirst? Because thirsting invites self-examination. When Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, he is saying, how are you in your soul? How are you? Stop. Get rid of the cell phone. Turn off the TV. Get by yourself. How's your soul? Why are you satisfied with so little of God? What are you doing to silence the sweet whisper of God into your soul? Why doesn't it bother me more that God is far off? Let your emotions tell you how you've left your first love. Look at your anger. Look at your fear. Look at your worry. Look at your loneliness. What, what does that tell me? about how I'm sacrificing my first love, Jesus, to something else. You know, there's a thing called Madison Avenue, and you know what they specialize in? Telling you what to thirst for. So if you watched the game the other night, all three or four hours, in between every pitch, there were people in advertising telling you what you must thirst for. And what's so tricky is we have good pursuits that eclipse our enjoyment of Christ. Good things, work, ministry, relationships, physical fitness, good things. But in and of themselves, they will eat up your enjoyment of Jesus. What comfort, beloved, in your life is masking the peace of God's presence? What comfort? Food, drink, sleep, success, friendship, is there an emptiness echoing your soul? I want to go down a personal testimony here for a moment, if you'll allow me to. 45 years ago, around the Beltway in McLean, Virginia, I was a senior in high school. It was an idyllic existence. Both my older brothers were off at college. I had the bathroom to myself, and I had the car to myself. I had two incredibly supportive parents. I was getting good enough grades at Langley High School to go to the college of my choice. I was co-editor of the school newspaper, co-captain of the football team. I was dating a cheerleader. Life was good. Seriously. And I vividly remember one beautiful fall afternoon. It was a Friday. I had a game later that night. Mom had cooked me my pregame meal. I got up from the kitchen table and was bounding up the steps. And halfway up the step, go to my room for something, I stopped and I said, there's got to be more than this. And I said, oh well, and went on with the day. <laughs> For real. Oh well. Young people, the answer is not 
O well, it's a water of life, Jesus, come to my heart. He did eventually, thank God, and disavowed me of the things that so easily tantalized my soul. What's our conclusion? Who can hear the message? If anyone thirsts, come to me. Who can hear the message? Jesus bid the woman at the well to come. Jesus bid the crowds at the Feast of Booths to come. Jesus is bidding you to come. If the invitation is so clear, why are people so slow and dull to this glorious invitation? Why? Well, they're satisfying their thirsts with, oh well. Let me just tease out a couple ways you do that. Some people, and it's ultimately self-sufficiency. There's the, re the religious self-sufficient. In, in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees. They felt really good about themselves because they were religious. They went to church. They did religious things. It does you no good, ultimately, if it isn't ultimately about Jesus Christ and drinking from him. And, you know, what about the people that aren't so good that can't pull off religious duty? They just stink at life. What about them? Where's their hope? It's in Jesus, not religion. Some of you are morally self-sufficient. You're a good person compared to Hitler. <laughs> no, compared to Hitler, you're a good person. But have you been confronted with the blazing glory of the holiness of God in his law? If you think you're a good person, you haven't. Some of you are relationally self-sufficient. I think that was the woman at the well Relationships are good in your life. They become the glue that holds your soul together. Or sensuality. Those things, beloved, they drown the whisper of your need for God in your heart. Some of you are intellectually self-sufficient. You might know the scriptures. You might know theology. Look, you know all the theology that there is to know. You know what that qualifies you to be? A demon. Demons' theology is great. They know God. They know who God is. And they shudder. Don't rest on that. Let that point you to the ultimate object of our scripture and our theology, the glory of Jesus, the life-giving well. And some of you are materially self-sufficient. Easy in our culture. Again, no one gave a thought to clean water. And ironically, this represents the well of salvation in Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And that would be the last thing to say. Our only rescue from these things is the power of the Spirit. When Jesus was at the feast, he said this, he spoke of, this, of the Spirit. Now, I want you to know there are different ways to translate those verses in John 7. Jesus could have been speaking about himself as the source of the spring of the Spirit. He could have been speaking, as most of our English translations put it, God will put in you a well. Either way, the point is clear. We need the Spirit of God to bring us the life of Jesus. And that's why the Scripture says, Christ is in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. We receive the mercy, the salvation, the love, the light, the life, the hope of Jesus by the Spirit. If you don't have that, beloved, right now, ask the Spirit to give you these things. He will. He is jealous to save the hopeless. And so here's the final, final irony. We see the glory of Christ in his hideous cross hideous 
We do everything we can to hide our shame. Jesus bore your shame publicly in his distress on the cross. And it shouldn't surprise us that the way God brings living water to his people always looks impossible to us. There's a rock over there and a bunch of sand in the wilderness. How do we get water? Strike it and the water will come. God struck his son, Jesus, on the cross, the rock of ages, and the water of life has come to us by giving himself. He created a constant spring flowing for you. No wonder Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. He became nothing to give you everything. And here's the irony. When you receive everything, you want to give him everything. If the disposition of your heart has never been, I want to give you everything, I don't think you've received yet the everything of Jesus' cross and resurrection. The irony, the more grace you savor, the more you want. Show me a person ravishingly in love with Jesus, and they'll tell you, I need more of them. I want more of them. I've got to sit at that cross. I hunger for the word of God. And the more grace you have, the more you want to give it away. It's the way God works, ironically. And finally, ironically, the more grace you have, the more diligent you are to preserve and protect it. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Exactly what Jesus did for 33 years. He watched over his heart to give you life through his death and resurrection. So, beloved, drink, be satisfied. Let's pray. We hail you, Jesus Christ, giver of the Holy Spirit, the one who satisfies our thirsts. Through your unspeakable agony, you bring us unspeakable pleasure. Cause my brothers and sisters, my poor, dull heart to relish and to savor you by your spirit. Give us yourself again. And then may we joyfully bring that cup of cold water to others. They might drink. In Jesus' name, amen.